Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Why didn't you guys help fight Thanos or any war or all the other terrible things throughout history? We were instructed not to interfere in any human conflicts unless deviants are involved. By who? Only one of us knows what deviants are or who made the Eternals stay out of all the wars, Josh, and it isn't me. I have seen Chloe Zhao's Eternals, and I have thoughts. And I look forward to hearing those thoughts. Also this week, a review of actor Rebecca Hall's directing debut, Passing, starring Ruth Nega and Tessa Thompson, and the seventh and final film in our Jane Campion review, 2009's Bright Star. That and more. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. My man John Keats said that. I mean, it was no Ben Wishaw, but pretty good, pretty good. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Chloe Zhao has won a Best Directing Oscar, Josh. I don't know if you believe it or not. That was just earlier this year. I don't believe it. This world is too bitter and cruel for something like that to ever have happened, Adam. Zhao's last two films, The Best Picture winning Nomadland and 2018's The Writer, received nearly universal acclaim from critics, but her Marvel debut, Eternals, which hit theaters last weekend, has been mostly a critical bust, with reviews so far that put it in the company, Josh, of unloved Marvel efforts like Thor The Dark World and Iron Man 2. Hey, 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 ease up on The Dark World there, all right? <laughs> At least there wasn't love for Iron Man 2. I wasn't able to catch up with Eternals on its opening weekend, but you will share your review of the film later in the show, and maybe you can convince me to catch up with the checks notes here, carry the one two-hour and 37-minute film. <laughs> yeah, that's. I don't think that's going to happen, but we'll see what I can do. <laughs> also later in the show, the final movie, and our Jane Campion oeuvre review, It's Bright Star. But first, a more than worthy film to substitute for Eternals in our main review slot, Passing. Pardon me, I don't mean to stare, but I think I know you. Claire? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to find out the history of the blonde you've brought along. She's a girl from Chicago I used to know. Princess from Chicago. Things aren't always what they seem. I'll be damned. Lots of people pass all the time. It's easy for a Negro to pass for white. I'm not sure it'd be so simple for a white person to pass for color. 
So you haven't ever thought to? What? Have you ever thought of passing? No, why should I? Now I have everything I've ever wanted. This is my husband, John Bellew. Does he know? Do you dislike Negroes, Mr. Bellew? No, 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 not at all. I hate them. (laughs) (laughs) When we discussed In the Mood for Love earlier this year, Adam, as part of our Wong Kar Wai marathon, I talked about how it was hard to really separate the lead performances by Maggie Chung and Tony Leung from each other. As good as they are individually, there's just something particularly magical about how those performances work in concert. It's a true acting duet. One turn wouldn't fully exist without the other. I wonder if something similar is happening with Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega in passing. In this adaptation of the 1929 novella by Nella Larson, it's the writing-directing debut of actor Rebecca Hall, Thompson stars as Irene, a light-skinned black woman who occasionally passes for white for convenience sake to shop in certain stores, for example, or escape the heat of the day in a segregated hotel, which we see in the film's opening scene. The movie follows Irene's unexpected reunion with Negus Claire, a childhood friend who is engaged in a much more high-stakes game of passing, considering her racist white husband is unaware that she is actually African-American. There's a lot to discuss when it comes to passing, including its use of black and white cinematography, but I do want to start with these lead performances, Adam. What did you make of Thompson and Nega and what they bring to the screen here, both individually but also together? Hmm. Well, first, I really like the reference to Wong Kar Wai and In the Mood for Love. Another case of coincidence spotting, perhaps, that both of our films this week connect to In the Mood for Love. Both feature relationships that are rather chaste, and there's a certain amount of repression of sexual desire, a lack of action on that sexual longing. Of course, I'm talking about passing, and our Campion film we'll get to later, Bright Star. I'm going to get directly to your question, but maybe just meander a bit on my path there. I want to start where this movie starts. This really incredible opening, which just sets up this entire film as a sensory experience. Mm. The voices we hear, just shards of comments from passersby on the street, this blurred visual effect. It's the POV of Tessa Thompson's character, but we don't really know that yet, looking down at the street, then following some women's shoes into this shop. I kind of like, even as I think about it now, I see it in my head. Of course, she would follow right in their footsteps. That's what she's actually trying to do, see if she can pass for being white women just like them. And then it kind of comes into focus, but we don't even see her face for a good 30 to 60 seconds or maybe more. And the remarks even about the heat, it it all kind of just adds to this effect that's almost suffocating, the tension, as we may not know all the circumstances here and all the context, but we understand that this character is trying something new, is trying something alien. And you feel her apprehension, you feel her fear, you feel that alienness, but you also kind of get the the thrill of it. That, that she is pulling it off, that she's being someone new, that she's being someone different. And so then the moment where you're really kind of rocked in your seat watching this movie, and it's so 
small a moment in terms of cinema, I suppose, but huge in terms of its impact on this story and these characters. It's where she goes and sits down at that hotel tea room, and she's just scanning the room, and all of a sudden locks eyes with that friend, locks eyes with Claire. She doesn't know it's her old friend at this point, but the way Claire, the way Ruth Nega is looking back at her so still, statuesque, like a silent film star even, maybe from the era, I think this movie is set around 1929, there is something about that, that moment that made me think of like Rear Window, your beloved Rear Window, when the, the eyes on the other side of the street actually look back. Mm, and Jimmy yeah, Stewart or, or in the matrix where in that simulation or whatever it is, all the characters start to realize that Neo doesn't belong there. She, and really we, because the camera is reflecting her point of view, we're caught almost as voyeurs, except she's not guilty of, of watching. That's not what she's doing wrong here. Of course, what she's doing quote unquote wrong is trying to pass. And when they lock eyes and Nega's character stares back at her, there's a sense that, she sees in her something familiar, something similar, and you get the sense that it risks exposing her, and she panics, and she tries to leave. But then, of course, Nega comes over and actually engages with her. And here's now where I'm going to get back to your question. I really think in that moment when they stare across at each other, when they make that visual connection, it's as if... Irene, Thompson's character, is looking at herself in a mirror. Nega's character, Claire, is a reflection of her, but in some way a warped reflection of her. There is something different about them, and that difference is something we recognize that Irene despises in a way, but also there's something she longs for that she sees, a certain freedom, perhaps. And I think the key difference in their performances is that Thompson maintains a facade, but her character's fears and her anxieties betray themselves all the time in her eyes, in her face, in her posture, the tension in her body. Whereas Nega is always, almost always still and settled and icy and impeccably dressed and impeccably posed. And she's actually intimidating the yeah. way she holds oh, yeah. herself in every frame of this film. And she must weigh like a hundred pounds soaking wet, but it's all posture and attitude and she is much more still, which is fascinating in its irony because she's the one who is so much more dramatic. She's the one who's more noticeable every time she walks into a room. So I think you are onto something when you point out that you can't really separate this film from these two performances because there's a symbiotic relationship between these two characters at its core. So you haven't ever thought to? What? I'm asking if you ever thought of passing, Rena. No, why should I? I mean, for convenience, occasionally, I suppose, but no. I just mean I have everything I've ever wanted. Except perhaps a little more money. Well, of course, that's all anybody ever wants. A little more money. <laughs> Money's an awfully nice thing to have. In fact, all things considered, I think it's entirely worth the price. Yeah, Claire is in control. You get a sense that she's always in control as perilous as the situations are that she increasingly puts herself in. And that's the fascinating thing about this character. I'm so glad you mentioned her stare the first time we see it, the directness mm -hmm. of it. And this is a character who is 
is sort of like brazen and out front about everything, yet at the same time is hiding the biggest secret that anyone right. has. And somehow she balances that. Um, Nega's eyes in this film, and, and the thing that it took me so long to get used to, I'm not all that familiar with her work. I think she had a small part in Ad Astra, right, that I've seen, the, the Brad Pitt film. Um, other than that, I know her and thought it was one of the best performances of the year in Jeff Nichols' Loving. But think of about The Housewife, um, that period uh, interracial romantic historical drama um, think about that character, how sort of reserved and quiet and being this this um, figure of strength, but in the background, like quiet mm-hmm. strength. And she was so good. And here she is just all forward and outward and destabilizing. And I think this is what connects with what you were talking about in terms of Thompson's performance. You know, I came mm-hmm. out of this out of passing initially, just like blown away, as I've described by Nega. And kind of thinking like, okay, but how does Thompson fit into this? Um, And um, it was actually, I've talked about this on the Think Christian podcast too with Catherine Freeman. And Catherine kind of helped me see that she talked about the rage that she saw in Irene, which speaks to what you were talking about, Adam, right? There's this attraction to Claire, this jealousy, but also this, this rage that I think is on Thompson's face when we do get those revealing close-ups because it takes a while for us to get close to her character for the camera to kind of let us in until we do get um, those really, and the camera is intense on these women a lot um, where it's goes back to your idea. I think you said claustrophobia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the camera is very close in on Thompson's face. And that's where we see all of this stuff roiling the attraction, um, but also the jealousy and also the outrage that Claire is trying to get away with even trying to get away with what she's doing, and then the outrage that she's getting away with it, you know, in a way that Irene disapproves of, but is also a little uh, jealous of. So this relationship between these two characters has, it is similar to In the Mood for Love when we talk about the layers of connection that those two characters had as potential lovers, as neighbors, as jilted spouses, Add on top of that, jilted spouses who are being jilted by their respective spouses. You know, just like every interaction between those those two characters had um, like 10 different tentacles involved. And I think there's something similar going on here between Claire and Irene. As you suggested, there's there's some sort of possible romantic sexual attraction. And that's at play as well. And so to see these two characters, each scene they hold together is just electric with all of that tension and possibility. And I think both both actors are able to embody that in completely different but equally compelling ways. Yeah, Claire is the character who should be on the roller coaster and out of control. Yeah, yeah. Feel the anxiety we see Irene experiencing in the opening scene, but it's actually Thompson's character, Irene, who should should be hiding nothing, seems to have the perfect life, seems to be completely comfortable, the husband, the kids, the house with the maid, all of that, but actually maybe living the more deceptive life than mm. Claire. That's really the the secret at the core of this movie, even if maybe she didn't fully realize that deception or isn't having to reckon with that yeah, self-deception yeah. until she meets Claire again. And in fact, that's one area where I wish the script had held back just a little bit because it had already expressed it. It already said it early in the film. 
in one way. Then the movie was expressing it the whole time. And so it just feels like a moment where you're getting the thesis underlined. But she says at one point, Irene, we're all passing for something or other. Yeah. There, there's more at stake in this movie. It's not just about these characters who are black women passing as white women. It's passing for being happy. Content, yes. It's, it's you know, passing for just being a mother, for being a wife. You know, we see in Irene, she's a character who is in denial in a lot of ways about the precariousness of her position in America, even due to her race, and wants yeah. to hide some of those horrors from her kids. But Claire does, you alluded to this, seem to spark something else, too. And maybe that unhappiness that we see, or that not even unhappiness, the lack of contentment. That's the right mm -hmm. word for it. You said it. Those are two different things. Right. That lack of contentment may have something to do with the fact that she's perhaps not as attracted to Brian, her husband, played wonderfully, as always, by Andre Holland, the way maybe she, quote unquote, should be. She feels something more. There's an allure to Claire that is caught up in all these other things we've been talking about, but it also might be just her stunning beauty. And it's it's notable that... Irene is constantly articulating what she thinks other people are feeling and really exposing herself, right? So there's a scene where she's talking to the Bill Camp character and writes off the handsomeness of a really dark black man because she says it's really just people being swept up in the exotic and it almost makes you feel titillated by it because you recognize there's something kind of taboo about it. But meanwhile, you know the whole time she's describing Claire and her feelings for her. Sure, sure. And I'm glad you point out that, you know, when we meet Irene, she is already a little bit um, unsteady because I think that's where the filmmaking comes into play. And we sense that before this destabilizing force that is Claire comes into her life, she's already unsure. That brilliant opening you described gives us that sense. And here's where we can circle back, I think, to the filmmaking a little bit. I love how Hall's camera repeatedly and very intricately links with what Irene sees, her point of view. Mm -hmm. So think about that man she sees who, because of the hotness of the day, I'm assuming, has passed out on the sidewalk and is laying there. And just the unsettling nature of that. Or, and this speaks to the sexual attraction you were just talking about, the shot of Claire's legs crossed beneath the tea table. Before she even, I think, really fully realizes who she is, oh, yeah. we are aligned with this is something that uh, Irene notices and registers with her and importantly, it makes her feel unsteady as well. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's where then we get those close-ups that are very tight on Thompson's face and to kind of communicate that with us. Um, so I do think there's, you know, some some really clever filmmaking work going on here that emphasizes what we're getting in the performances. Oh, 100%. I think that man on the street, while it seems maybe like a throwaway, is actually a really great cinematic moment, very revealing about her character, because it foreshadows the moment I described earlier that we've talked about when she is kind of knocked off her feet figuratively by seeing Claire staring at her across that tea room. We know because we have seen it, because we're experiencing it with her, that at any moment, she could faint as well, that she could end up like that on the street, just like that man is. And you see kind of the horror at that realization that she might lose control and be that unsteady. And it's a mirroring effect again, right? Seeing potentially herself and that man yeah. across the street, just as she's going to see herself in Claire looking back at her in a little bit. But yeah, it is, I think the word I use was suffocating. And I think what adds to that too, is that kind of era appropriate 
four by three aspect ratio, mm, mm-hmm. the boxiness of the frame does really restrict these characters in a lot of ways. You feel like they're caught by their circumstances. They're caught by this frame. And another technique Hall employs here is just calling attention to the character's breathing. There are multiple times where Irene finds herself in kind of a shaky circumstance, a conversation that makes her uneasy. And when she gets out of that, when she closes the door behind her, the camera just pauses on her while she takes a deep breath. And so then it makes you very aware as a viewer of just the need to catch your breath as well. So we're always aligned with her in that way. Yeah. Another striking choice is the black and white cinematography. Mm-hmm. Um, the photographer here, Edward Grau. And it was interesting to me, it, it, it sort of ironically emphasizes that there are all sorts of ranges of skin tone in all of these characters. And it took yes. black and white in a way to kind of make that stand out. And of course, it's ironic because like this is these are people living in a world um, where it's assumed that everything is simply black and white. Mm-hmm. And if you would look at things as black and white and see people in those categories, that's how life should be. But it takes the actual black and white cinematography to reveal the falseness of that, to reveal how, speaking of mirror imagery, the many times Hall um, sets up the composition so that uh, Irene and Claire are either facing each other or in profile together. And we can see like even the variations in their own skin tone, two women who are, you know, at times pulling off the same ruse, but it's not because mm-hmm. they look exactly the same, um, you know? And so I, I like that touch and it adds, you know, you know, it adds to the impressionistic experience, I think, as well, just because we're not mm-hmm. used to black and white cinematography. And also adding to that impressionism is is the score. The composer here, Devante Hines, I was a little thrown off because I recognize, if you remember um, when we talked about the documentary Time from last year, I believe, how I loved the use of this music I had never heard before by yeah. an Ethiopian nun, I believe, who composed um, the piano music, Amahoy Segway Mariam Gabrow. I'm, I'm listening to it as I'm watching Passing, thinking this is the same music, but it it's also a little different. So as far as I understand, Devante Hines, the composer, kind of worked parts of that into the own, his own score. It seemed really? like. It, it seemed like it kind of went back and forth from something new to those elements. Maybe it wasn't that they were worked together, but some scenes were immediately followed by scenes with original music from Hines. At any rate, the overall effect um, of this piano music by Gabro is just kind of transporting, and it added to sort of the experience of this, as I think you said early on. It's a very sensory yeah. film, and the, the soundtrack, the score is part of that. Yeah, and there's more in the filmmaking I want to highlight. My favorite cut in the movie, there's one subtle, and I know this seems like an oxymoron, but one subtle bravura match action cut where they go to a dance together in Harlem. And there's one shot where a couple is dancing. It's another couple. They're on the floor and they're really kind of whooping it up. And just as the man dips down to the ground, the camera cuts to Nega lifting up her flask to take a drink. And it's a very deliberate match cut on kind of this opposite action, right? Of, of going down and then back up again. And we talked about point of view shots. How about the moment where we are a little bit jarred by the fact that we are now being aligned with the point of view of Claire after 
seeing everything through Irene's eyes, and it's walking into that dance. The camera is tracking along the line to get in, and we think that's all it is. It's the camera. It's the director choosing to track across and show these characters who are almost all looking straight ahead, except for one man near the end of the line who's not looking straight ahead. He's looking straight at the camera. And then we cut and we realize that it's it's Nega. It's her point of view as she's walking past them and he's looking straight at her. So another moment where we feel like we're being we're being seen, like we're almost being called out there as viewers. And there is, I think you maybe noted this, this impressionistic aspect to the black and white. That becomes really prominent the more unsteady Irene gets, unsteady in every facet of her life. The perspective becomes more and more warped, and it is something you don't see often with black and white in film. But the apartments that are across the street, outside these windows, look distorted. They look like they are something out of an impressionistic painting lacking the color. We often see the rest of the world around the women very blurred. And another line I wanted to call out, a really good screenwriting moment, I think, as obvious as it may seem, it does really make you think for a second at that same dance. And it's that conversation talking to the Bill Camp character, again, a writer who is a friend of Irene and her husband. A white writer, notably. A white writer. That's right. She says something about how it surely has to be more difficult for a white person to try to pass as a black person than the reverse, than what Claire is doing. And he says something like, oh, I had never thought of that. And she calls him on it and says, well, why would you, Hugh? And mm-hmm. right there in that line, in that rhetorical question she throws back at him, you realize sort of the, the immensity of the dynamic at play there between the two races and the fact that the empowered, the one who has lived an entire life of privilege, basically, of course, never would think about it in those terms. Sure. Would never consider for a second what it might be like for a white person to pretend to be black because why would they ever do such a thing? Which is very different, as this movie tells us, for people who are of the other race. Yeah, I like those conversations with the camp character because they show that these are all things Irene has thought about deeply and mm-hmm. is, is kind of trying to repress. It's not that she's naive or doesn't understand any of this. It's that she wants to sweep it aside and and live what she's been told she is supposed to be a comfortable life. Um, but she's very thoughtful about a lot of this. Back to your um, note about the point of view shot involving Claire, I think that moment and maybe some others are helpful in getting us to realize that there is some fragility here. If I if I seem to describe Nega's performance and Claire as sort of this super confident, unba- unbothered character, right. that's what she presents. But the movie yeah. and the performance show us there is more there, um, especially as we get closer to the end and this really climactic party where we will not spoil at all, though I don't know if it's possible to spoil because... I was so relieved to see that Hall left the ambiguity of the novella's ending at play here. And I would love to hear how that worked for you. Did you kind of hope for something that was a little more um, a little more concrete in where this movie leaves us? Or did you feel it was uh, fitting to kind of uh, leave us walking out wondering what we yeah. just witnessed? Yeah, no, I definitely appreciated that 
ambiguity. I think there are multiple layers to the ending that are fun to think about and seem appropriate for the characters and the story. I feel, though, and I'm not familiar with the novella, I believe it's maybe only about 100 pages long. There is a little bit of a short story aspect to this film where there's a moment, for example, where Irene is questioning Brian on his feelings for Claire. And don't get me wrong, Hall stages more than enough scenes where we start to, again, seeing it from Irene's perspective, it seems like there might be something nefarious going on, that there might be something more to this relationship. And yet the moment where she's specifically almost accusing him of maybe not even cheating on her with Claire, but really almost defining his life by Claire, if that makes any sense, it felt a little false to me. It, it, felt, it felt as if the the plot in that moment needed a little injection of that drama to mm. kind of get us to the end. And I was very aware in that moment that it felt like kind of novella material. And what I mean by that is often short stories end with those very provocative kind of ambiguous endings and very dramatic endings like we get here. The The epiphanies are sort of left for you to ponder as you you close the book or in this case, shut off the screen or walk out of the theater. Yeah, there's a great filmmaking uh, trick regarding that relationship and the ambiguity of it where as we first, Irene is coming down the stairs, Brian has welcomed Claire into their apartment. And um, when she sees them in the mirror, I believe, they're they're whispering very close, talking together. Mm-hmm. And then she comes around the corner and we cut and we see that she now has a clearer view. And the next time the camera looks at them, they're like, there's five feet in between them. Right. And we're just kind of left with that. Idea, like, was she imagining this? Did they move in the time she came around the corner? Um, and so that that is sort of an ambiguity that I think is carried through regarding that particular subplot i had i'll just say i had a stronger sense of what was going on there from the novella than i did from the movie which maybe speaks to your point about it not being as as Hmm. fleshed out as it possibly could have been passing a very strong directing debut from rebecca hall is currently playing in limited release and on netflix if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net Up next, my thoughts on Chloe Zhao's Eternals and listeners' thoughts on other Golden Brick-winning directors who should make an MCU film. Plus, English majors assemble. Our Jane Campion overview concludes with the John Keats sort of biopic, Bright Star. Stay with us. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night beside her. And you know that she's half crazy But that's why you wanna be there And she feeds you tea and oranges That come all the way from China And just when you mean to tell her That you have no love to give her Then she gets you on her wavelength And she lets the river answer That you've always travel with her and you want to travel 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Five years ago, Thanos erased half of the population of the universe. But the people of this planet brought everyone back with a snap of a finger. The sudden return of the population provided the necessary energy for the emergence to begin. That's Salma Hayek in the trailer for Marvel's Eternals. The post-Endgame world has led to the emergence of some new faces in the MCU. This year, we got the extended Black Widow family along with Shang-Chi and friends. And now, Chloe Zhao has introduced us to 10 new superheroes in her latest film, which had no trouble weathering the critical beating it's received so far. It made over $70 million in its opening weekend. Good for the third highest opening of this still not-at-all-normal movie year. My question for you, Josh... Is, is Eternals really that bad? And is it at all a Chloe Zhao movie? Uh, it is not that bad. Uh, it really? is better than the drubbing it's gotten. Now, this is not to say that it's a success, but I. what's most interesting about it and what makes me say it's not that bad is this is very much a Chloe Zhao movie, which I would not have guessed at all. It's... Maybe maybe because I didn't know anything about Eternals. I didn't know this comic. I didn't know the backstory. But when you learn what is going on here, you realize this is another step in Zhao's sort of ode to Terrence Malick that she's been doing since her first film, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, which very much struck me as, you know, Malickian in its imagery, at least, of these uh, natural landscapes and capturing the beauty of them. So that's here. We have these superheroes. Yeah, they're against way too much CGI as well. That's why this mostly doesn't work for me. But there are also instances where they are against some beautiful imagery. You've got that. But Adam, you've also got a story that is about these celestial beings who have presided over humanity's evolution since the dawn of time. And what ends up happening is this is a movie that's ruminating on the creation of life. It's ruminating on a single soul's place within the grand cosmos. Does this remind you of any Malick film that sure. we both adore? Yeah, I don't know. The Tree of Life so, or insert other Malick title here. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But especially the Tree of Life. So... It didn't take too long for me to realize, okay, here's why Chloe Zhao was interested in this property. And I think that was my you know, main concern when you hear this is like, is it just a paycheck thing? Is it just you know, a poaching thing, as we've described it, uh, that the MCU is doing, that Marvel is doing? And there's some potential points of connection within stylistically what she's done before in the imagery, but also possibly thematically. This is exploring some questions that maybe she didn't hit on quite as directly in something like Nomadland or The Rider, um, but here she is. So that's the good news. That's why Eternals was more interesting to me than I would have guessed, and I can see why Zhao might have been intrigued by it. But it really doesn't work, and I think it's because Marvel didn't give her the chance to really pursue all of that. There are so there's so much formula here 
that just makes this thing dead on arrival. We are You already mentioned it. Ten members on this team. Way too many. I mean, the MCU took how many years carefully building our relationships with individual heroes before throwing them in as the Avengers, right? Here we get 10 all at once who most of us, unless you're comic book nerds, have no idea who these characters are. And, and you mean so, that lovingly? I, I do mean it lovingly. Yeah. I I grew up reading comic books. I, I mean it lovingly. Not as intensely to the point where I knew who the Eternals were. So that didn't help me here. I had nothing to bring into this. And mm-hmm. the movie didn't help me to come to feel that intense connection to them. It just insisted on humor. And this is an installment where maybe they could have left that by the wayside. Poor Kumail Nanjiani is like, it's like, you're going to be funny guy, be funny guy. And he's, he's an, you know, honestly, he's that his superpower. It should be because he kept me awake for long stretches of this when I otherwise might have checked out, but it's also kind of reductive and gets to be a little deadening too, where, oh, now he's going to say something witty. Whereas previous MCU installments have kind of woven that in with a little more nuance. And ultimately it goes back to the imagery. You know, this does believe in CGI. It's just going to bow down before CGI and what CGI can give us, which is not at all as interesting as some of the imagery that Zhao gives us other places in this movie and certainly has given us in other of her films. And here quickly, the last thing why I don't think this works, one strength of the MCU has almost always been the casting. From the very beginning and throughout, they nailed the casting. And I don't know how Gemma Chan and Richard Madden were chosen as the leads of this. They're, they are two of the Eternals and they end up being the leads. But I am sorry, maybe it's just the material. I'm not all that familiar with them from other work, but they are both complete blanks. There's no charisma when they're on the screen individually or together. And the mm. real problem with that is not only how much screen time they're given, but going back to the Tree of Life, you know how the father-son dynamic there was kind of meant to make the cosmic and personal converge in a way that so many of us found just like overwhelmingly moving. That's what these two characters are required to do within this construct. And when you have performances that are not resonating at all between each other or with the audience, in my experience, at least, that's really going to undercut what this movie is trying to do. So Eternals might not work, but I still think it's, you know, more interesting than a lot of the reviews have given it credit for. I don't know. That, I don't know if that convinces you or anyone else to give this movie almost three hours of your time, but that was my experience. Well, now I'm mad at you because you you almost talked me into it. <laughs> oh, no. Almost enough of a defense. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> to make me more curious about Eternals. Eternals is currently playing in wide release. If you've got two hours and thirty seven minutes and you get a chance to see it or have already seen it, you can write in. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Tell us what Josh got wrong. Next week is an early Thanksgiving break for us, but we will return the following week with a review of the movie that will actually close out our Jane Campion oeuvre review. The finale is The Power of the Dog, her latest film. Also on that show, we'll have our Campion oeuvre review awards. Do we have a name in mind for these awards, Josh? I haven't seen any submissions. We usually rely Mm -hmm. on listeners for this. I'm thinking, you know, having seen The Power of the Dog, a piano is involved. The piano is her most well-received and best-known movie. So something, piano keys, something, I don't know. There's a place to start. But yeah, I'm sure our listeners will come up with something better. We would love your thoughts. Feedback at filmspotting.net. 
I've got a couple suggestions. I gave this 60 seconds of thought today and came up with three, Josh. Oh, Are you ready? look at you. Well, you went with the piano. You went with one of the titles or the piano keys. We could call them the Sweeties. Yep. It's got nice. a nice ring to it, it after does. her debut movie. We could go with The Peels, which is a reference to her debut short film mm-hmm. that played at Cannes. Or what do you think of this? I know you love puns. I'm not totally sure if this qualifies or not. The cuts above or in the cuts above. Is it too much? The cuts above. I do kind of like that. And as I've said, pro pun, when you're titling things. Okay. Just not in common conversation or in tweets. Got it. We have your very specific rules now down in the film spotting bible thank you josh for that more information about our campion overview including all the titles and where to watch them at filmspotting.net slash campion we'll get to bright star here in a few moments also in a couple of weeks we'll play massacre theater the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt in case you missed it here's a bit of our last massacre And people are coming, you know? Ray and Dorothy, they think we're flaky enough. You said that we would wait until after, and now you're going to peek before me. No, no, it's cool. We'll trip, and then we'll eat our feast. All right. Not not a lot of energy in that performance. Groovy. Really, really kind of exhaustedly groovy. Exhaustedly groovy. That's I'm going to expire to be exhaustedly groovy in my daily life. I think yeah. that'd be fun. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, November 22nd. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. Travis. I don't know what kind of trouble you got into. I don't know what happened. But damn it, I'm your brother, man. You can talk to me. I'm tired of doing all the talking. Now, this was sad news. The late Dean Stockwell there in the great Paris, Texas from Vin Vendor's Stockwell died earlier this week. He was 85 years old. Definitely on our minds as we were fortunate enough to revisit Paris, Texas just last year. It was part of our 8 from 84 series, actually bonus content, a revisit and reappreciation certainly of that masterpiece that we did for our film spotting family members over on Patreon, a bonus show there that's still available if you sign up as a film spotting family member, very good in that. And, you know, Stockwell, I didn't really understand this or know this until this week when I saw some of the tributes, but he started as a child actor back in the 1940s and appeared in well over 100 movies in a 70-year career. Now, being 80s children, I don't know, maybe your parents thought this was too racy for you, Josh, on TV. I don't know if you got to watch Quantum Leap or not, but that was definitely my (laughs) first exposure to Dean Stockwell. (laughs) Wait a minute. Wasn't Quantum Leap like some sort of sci-fi thing? Did things get yeah. sexy on that? No. Oh. No, but, you know, I just like to think of you as a very sheltered child. <laughs> well, uh, that's that's completely incorrect, but <laughs> I did I did not, uh, however, make time for Quantum Leap. I think that was a personal choice, not a really? parental not a parental one. No judgment. But I think you're right. I think you're onto something. When I think of Dean Stockwell, it, I do think it's TV like early TV in my life that I might've seen him on. So I'm looking at some of his credits, maybe the A-Team, 
where mm. I think he might have just showed up in one episode. It looks like Simon and Simon as well. That was a that was a staple in in the Larson household. Simon and really? Simon detective A-team. show. Oh yeah, A team definitely was for me. There you go. And I'm looking at these, and a lot of them he'll have one appearance. Murder she wrote. Oh, I've talked about my mom loved Jessica in Murder She Wrote. He showed up there too. So I think that speaks to like the work ethic, the thing we're talking about. He just worked and worked and worked and showed up in so many of these series. That's probably what I recognize him from. But yeah, hmm. in Paris, Texas, I mean, come on, how crucial of a supporting part that is to what that movie wants to do. And I always think back to the way he says to his brother, to Travis, when he catches up with him, doesn't berate him for disappearing mm-hmm. or anything, just says, Where'd you find that beard? Yeah. And the just the delivery of that is is this, you know, this unconditional love that he projects for this guy is so moving and so crucial to what that movie wants to do. So um yeah, one of those faces everyone of who grew up in any era is probably gonna immediately recognize. Well, we mentioned Paris, Texas. You singled out all those TV appearances, and Sam, our producer, picked a clip from Paris, Texas appropriately, but for me, you say Dean Stockwell, and what I see in here in my head is candy-colored clown they call the Sandman in that incredibly spooky scene. But one of the best music moments in cinema history, as far as I'm concerned, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. That's how I will forever imagine Dean Stockwell. He will haunt my dreams with that performance in Blue Velvet. He was also nominated for a Best Sporting Actor Oscar in 1988 for Jonathan Demme's Married to the Mob and was a four-time Emmy nominee for his role on Quantum Leap. You missed all of that, Josh. You missed all of that brilliance. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Uh, I guess I'm going to start streaming some Quantum Leap tomorrow. Yeah, I wonder if it's available. Gotta be. A quick plug for something I'm doing over at the day job that I think a fair amount of film spotting listeners might be interested in. It is our discussion of the Coen Brothers, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? This is part of the series I've been doing, creating video essays for four Coen Brothers films, talking about the theological themes in them. And the latest one I made is up, available now on YouTube. And we're going to get together on November 19th online. Open invitation. Whoever wants to join can join us, and we'll talk about some of those themes we see in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? If you want to join the club itself, so you get all the information, the videos, the Zoom links, all that stuff, you can do that at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. And if you just want to check out the essays, I've really enjoyed kind of learning some new skills, putting these together. You can do that on YouTube. Just search for Think Christian, and you'll find those there. Another plug, if you're interested in smart movie content, goes out to our friends at the next picture show. It's part one this week of their dual duels pairing. Well played, Genevieve Kosky. Edgar Wright's new Last Night in Soho, and I love this with Ingmar Bergman's persona. Now, it says in parentheses and in quotes, I'm guessing we can attribute this to one of the members of the next picture show, the Mount Everest of film analysis. And having seen Persona twice, I'm probably not going to dispute that, Josh. Does that imply you'll, you'll never get to the bottom of the film? Am I reading that right? Yeah, or Or get to to the the top top of it. Either way, I'm not even going to attempt to scale it, probably. So I congratulate The Next Picture Show and their hosts, Tasha Robinson, Keith Fiff, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky on giving it a shot. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. More info is at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support our show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. It's only five bucks a month. Here's what you get ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, 
early show downloads, live pre-sales and discounts, a merch discount, but also monthly bonus episodes. Last month for October, we did an Ask Us Anything edition that is available now for family members. And I think we're probably going to do the same for November. A couple other good questions have rolled in. Mm -hmm. So at some point, we'll get together, answer those, and put those up on the feed for family members. You also get a chance to get tickets for our monthly trivia spotting events with trivia master Thomas Todd. We just had one last weekend. That was a lot of fun. The winners, Adam, do we have those winners? I know it wasn't me. I know it wasn't you. So I pretty much try to forget everything that happened if I don't win. Mm. Well, then let me remind you, because this is the only solace I can take. I think you finished off the podium, and I think I finished yet again in second. Once again, a bridesmaid, Mm. but not the bride. We gave it a great shot. I don't have all the winners' names here. We'll save them for another show. But I do remember the winning team captain, Peter Labuza. First timer. Yeah, that's right. Longtime host of the Cinephiliacs. He was guest captain and did beat me in a lightning round, the captain versus captain lightning round that ultimately decided the championship because his squad beat mine by one point, Josh. It was in your grasp. It was. You you were the deciding factor, essentially. Yeah, and I blew it, which you know, nobody is nobody is surprised about. I mean, we do have a saying in the lightning rounds, after all, don't pull an atom. And I didn't this time. No, I didn't, you, you went strong I didn't on not pulling die. an atom. <laughs> yeah, I didn't die with my lifeline available to me. So, you know, I guess I'll pat myself on the back for that. But we will be back with more trivia spotting in 2022. January guest captains already lined up, and we are excited to get back to those events over Zoom with our family members. If you would like to become one of those family members, you can do so at patreon.com slash filmspotting. You play music, right? No. No? No, not anymore. Not until I get the implant. Implant. Yeah, sorry. You know about these implants they got now? It's like, it's like a, they, they have implants. I know. Yes. Expensive. Yeah, thank you. Yes, they are. How about this pitch, Josh? Sound of Metal as a superhero origin story. I mean, I can, I'll say I can see it, but I don't know that I'd want to see it, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, well played. It's a terrible idea. It's okay to say it. It's probably almost as misjudged as the current film spotting poll. Nevertheless, we asked you the question and we're going to share the results. A couple of weeks back, we gave you this scenario. The director of an MCU film, an upcoming MCU film, will be a recent winner of the Film Spotting Golden Brick Award. You may recall that Eternals director Chloe Zhao was a nominee and almost a winner back in 2018 for the writer. Who should it be? The options we gave you were the winners of the previous five Golden Bricks. This is the award, of course, as many of you know, we give out annually to the overlooked film of the year made by a new or emerging filmmaker. The choices were Darius Martyr, Joe Talbot, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, Koganata, Columbus, Anna Rose Homer, The Fitz, or Bing Liu, Minding the Gap. Josh, how did it come out? Well, it looks like listeners want to spare Koganata and Bing Liu the most. They both got 11% of the vote, tying for last place there. Anna Rose Homer received 15% of the vote. Joe Talbot, 23%. But Darius Martyr did win this. The Sound of Metal director got 39% of the vote. Now, our producer does want us to note that we gave Martyr this award months before his and his films many Oscar nominations. So Sound of Metal was definitely an overlooked film back when we first anointed it a golden brick. Nominee Stephen Wilson writes in, says, 
Why not Darius Martyr's Daredevil, please? There you go. Tom Morris has some thoughts on that. While Daredevil would be a good choice, it wouldn't have to be a superhero with hearing problems. I think he would be great to help develop the next X-Men reboot that will be coming to the MCU in a few years. Also, he could direct a film version of The Silver Surfer, although I still hope that Kevin Feige can get Tarantino to make that movie. Let's not forget it's really The Silver Skateboarder. At least that's how it is in my mind (laughs) on a recent show. You're just asking for it. Matt Rombach says, with Jonathan Majors set to play King the Conqueror in the next San Francisco set Ant-Man movie, who's to say Joe Talbot didn't already direct a stealth prequel? King goes by many names, Immortus, Rama Tut, Mont. Mont, of course, is Majors' character name in San Francisco as well. There you go. All right. Matt might be onto something. Laura said, I voted Bing Liu because I think he'd bring the freshest perspective to the growing staler by the installment MCU. It's a shame they've already tried their hand at The Runaways, a series on Hulu from 2017 to 2019. As a youth-oriented superhero story seems like the right fit for Liu. Perhaps a West Coast Avengers or Miles Morales Spider-Man could be a strong match. Okay, so Miles skateboarder, right? Am I remembering correctly from? Yeah, I think so. I like that. I think Laura might be onto something. Jeremy Webney Berman says, Bing Lu knows how to interweave seemingly unrelated storylines in emotionally resonant ways, with Marvel and Disney constantly pushing each movie to not only be a standalone, but also further set up the MCU. This seems to be the most important skill to have if you want to thrive making these movies. Another vote for Bing. One more comment here from Jordan. Hopefully, None of them. No one has ever come out well from giving over their directorial vision to Marvel. The last thing I'd ever wish for a talented emerging director is to get sucked into an anti-art, anti-cinema conglomerate. Sorry. Jordan did add sorry, but you know what? No apologies here, Jordan. Speaking of being Lou, though, why does he need to direct a Marvel movie? He's already appeared on trivia spotting. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) I mean, that's... I mean, his career... Pretty well set Criterion Collection edition of Minding the Gap. Trivia spotting. That's that's the highest level. Okay. That brings us to the latest deeply flawed film spotting poll. Peter Jackson's Get Back is coming out soon. It's a three-part, six-hour doc about the making of the Beatles' final album, Let It Be. It will hit Disney Plus Thanksgiving weekend. So yes, I know what I will be doing instead of spending time with my extended family. The doc is cold from 55 hours of footage shot during the recording of the album, A feature doc using some of that footage and directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg came out in 1970, as every Beatles aficionado knows. Our question then is, what is the best music doc of the last decade? And this being a deeply flawed film spotting poll question, this being a question that was developed by the mind of our producer, Sam Van Halgren, you know it's got a ton of disclaimers and different criteria applied, Josh. Would you like to summarize those disclaimers? I mean, can we just submit them to the FDA and see what comes back? Yeah. Yeah, we can. All right. You want me to? All right. We'll go through these. Sam's noting there have been a ton of music docs released in the past decade. There have been a ton of music docs released just this year, but only relatively few of those films get theatrical releases and even fewer are seen by a significant number of people. So in trying to limit this poll, the consensus best docs of the decade, Sam decided to stick with titles that got at least a limited theatrical release. This is how he's winnowing down here. And 
he's also differentiating between music docs and concert films. So uh, that means this this cut out a lot for me and makes me realize I I must like concert films more than music docs maybe because no David Burns American Utopia, no Aretha Franklin in Amazing Grace, no Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids from Jonathan Demi, no Shut Up and Play the Hits that was with LCD sound system and no Homecoming a film by Beyonce. So also, I understand an executive decision has been made not to include Martin Scorsese's Rolling Thunder review, a Bob Dylan story. As it is more fiction than fact, I'll let you speak to that, Adam. Yeah, well, that was Sam's executive decision, and I'm not sure I agree with oh, it. Oh boy, here it we might go. Have been, here we it go. Might have been my <laughs> choice, but you know what? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep going. We're gonna get into Sam's options because, despite all those disclaimers, despite all the titles we omitted intentionally. We still gave you some very good ones. You could go with 20 Feet from Stardom. This is the doc from Morgan Neville, who did Won't You Be My Neighbor and Roadrunner, the film about Anthony Bourdain. Asif Kapadia's Amy about Amy Winehouse. That was the 2016 Oscar winner for Best Documentary Feature. Or Cobain, Montage of Heck. That's Brett Morgan, who did Jane and the Kid Stays in the Picture. What about the 2013 Oscar winner for Best Doc, Searching for Sugar Man? Edgar Wright this year came out with the Sparks Brothers, Summer of Soul from this year, directed by Questlove, What Happened Miss Simone from Liz Garbus, that's a 2016 Oscar nominee, and another 2021 option, Todd Haynes, The Velvet Underground, recommended by me, I think, on our last episode, and if those options just do not work for you, you can vote other and write in your pick. Josh, which one of those would get your vote? So if I'm just merely going by not revisiting these, looking at what I've written in star ratings, it's got to be between Summer of Soul and Amy. And, you know, obviously I lean, it's fresher in my mind towards Summer of Soul right now. It's definitely in my top 10 of the year, but I don't know. I mean, Amy was pretty compelling. And if you look at, I think how Sam is thinking about this. So, so there it's the best, but I think at some point in the, see, this is stuck in my head. He had thought about like what, documentary would you want to see made into a longer series? So what would you want more of, basically? Mm. And that's hard, too, because Summer of Soul, I want more. We talked about this, more of that concert footage. Like, we wish we could have seen every act, right? So that gives that the edge, whereas Amy, I felt like this is what I liked about it. Like, it seemed like a full picture, and I don't know what more footage might add. But again, that's not necessarily what he's asking here. So I'm torn between those two. I'll get back to you on that. Okay. Well, if... I'm just going off the question, which one do I think is the best? It's tough because maybe 20 feet from stardom, I have a little bit in a tier below the others, but I'm a big fan of all of these other films. And I think my vote would go to one you mentioned was in contention. It would be Amy. I think that is my favorite doc of the bunch. I'm pretty sure it made my top 10 list that year. But you're right. Sam did initially prompt this question and generate a lot of feedback on Twitter about it by asking people to kind of weigh in on which one they'd like to see get the get back treatment. Yeah, that's what it was, right? What's the album that if we really got into the making of it would warrant that kind of exploration? And if we are tying that in at all, then I'm not sure I need more Amy, but I might need more Summer of Soul. And I really need more Miss Simone Mm. in my life. So that might be my vote. We would love to hear your picks, and your comments. The results so far, Summer of Soul is out ahead. Amy, not far behind, though. And other, predictably, getting some love, though, Sam says, guess what? You wasted your vote because 
a lot of you are including titles that Sam just decided are ineligible. So take that. <laughs> Thanks for playing. Anyway, you can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. I had such a dream last night. I was floating above the trees with my lips connected to those of a beautiful figure. Whose lips? Were they my lips? We get back to our Jane Campion overview with the trailer for 2009's Bright Star. This overview is a chronological look at all seven of Campion's features in anticipation of her upcoming The Power of the Dog. That comes to theaters later this month. Bright Star came six years after Campion's previous film, which was In the Cut. In the Cut had been both a critical and a box office failure. 1999's Holy Smoke hadn't fared much better before that. Having revisited all of her films now, filling in some blind spots, I think we agree, Adam, that Jane Campion has made zero bad films. I don't think either of us have come, come out negatively on any of these. No, we have not. In the Cut and Holy Smoke, definitely better than their reputations. Now, set in the year 1818, Bright Star is about the last three years in the life of poet John Keats, and it explores his relationship with Fanny Braun. Keats is played by Ben Wishaw, Braun by Abby Cornish. The film returned Campion to the romantic period picture, the kind of film she'd had her greatest success with if you think about the piano and the portrait of a lady. Of course, as with those films, calling this a period romance a little bit misleading as Campion's portrayal of male-female relationships along with the accompanying sexual and power dynamics are always complicated. They definitely are. Here, Bright Star opened in September 2009, and though it never played on more than a couple hundred screens, it was her biggest box office success since The Portrait of a Lady. It was also nominated for an Oscar, though for costume design, not for Campion's writing or direction. In addition to Wishaw and Cornish, the movie also features Carrie Fox as Fanny's widowed mother, Fox returns from Campion's An Angel at My Table, where she played the lead character Janet Frame. Paul Schneider also appears as Keats' best friend, Charles Armitage Brown. Keats' best friend and a foil of sorts, the villain, if you will, for Fanny Braun. On last week's show, I mentioned that Sam had noted my review of this movie back in 09 on like episode 289 of Film Spotting. And I said I had no recollection of it. That's because it was not reviewed on episode 289. Now, if you go to our archive and you look at our star ratings, maybe I mentioned it or maybe I just wanted to log on the website that I saw it and really liked it because it is true that I gave it four stars out of five on the old film spotting site. But nowhere in that show rundown is there listed anything about a conversation around this movie, which makes me feel a little bit better about my terrible memory. But back in 2009, you can reference a review that you wrote over at LarsonOnFilm.com. You wrote, It's a mystery as to why this Jane Campion period piece fades away rather than catches fire. In the end, the period trappings get the best of the director. She isn't able to transcend them the way she did with the piano. Now, I'm just really hoping that you're going to rap on the knuckles. 2009, Josh Larson. <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there and not allow you to paint me as a bright star hater because that is indeed not the case. I liked it a little less than you at the time. Definitely positive on it then. I think it was like a three out of four rating, whatever that's worth. And positive on it now. I mean, intensely romantic. I'm going to, I'm going to start actually with one of the things I appreciated more about it. 
this time around than I think I did then. And then I'll circle back to um, maybe what I still think are some of the limitations for it. I think I, I think I understand more why I had that reaction. It's less of a mystery this to me this time around. But let's go to the costume design. This is not something we've talked about in depth. And this is the place to do it, right? Because as we've said, Fanny Braun, the Abby Cornish character, is a seamstress, but she's also a fashion designer. And so the dresses that she designs and wears are instrumental to her character. And the costume designer here got the Oscar nomination, Janet Patterson. She worked with Campion on the piano, The Portrait of a Lady, and Holy Smoke. Think back to the piano, how this was such a key element for Ada, Holly Hunter's character. Uh, maybe one of the first three to five images that comes to mind for me when I think of the piano is Ada sinking into the mud and the way that gown, that black gown billows up around her, just communicating <laughs> on its own what this character is feeling. Now here, it's, of course, as I said, the defining element of Cornish's Fanny Braun. How about the collars that she wears repeatedly and talks about, right? They just, they're always kind of jumping out from her dress or coat or whatever she's wearing. They intend to stand out as Fanny Braun does in this society. She is not going to just accept where she's expected to sit and what she's expected to learn about and love and who she's expected to love. Mm -hmm. Those collars are letting everyone know what you see is what you're about to get, right? I think of that one very early on. It's this explosive white collar that is above this red, it's almost like a jacket she's wearing, beautifully echoes the white skirt she has, uh, but is just so bold. And then even, you know, I don't recall offhand what the collar is like on this dress, but that Christmas dress she wears made me think it's just gorgeous. It's like this dark gold, but it has these transparent sleeves. And I could be totally wrong on this. I haven't had time to do the research, but I'm th looking at this thing thinking that can't possibly be period. That just seems too incredibly modern, yet completely fits the character. And then to go back to the Schneider character, Brown, who you, <laughs> you talked about being kind of the comic villainous foil, the first scene we see him in, how about those plaid? They're like yeah. overalls, right? Yeah, they're like <laughs> a, a period piece pajamas. pajamas. They're amazing. Yeah, clown pants. And immediately you know like how we should feel about this guy, right? I really had fun with that performance this time around. So yeah, there's so much to love about Bright Star. Now, the reservations that clarified for me, this movie is very safe. This is incredibly safe. It is the most comforting not to say that they're, it's not complicated and the relationships aren't complicated, but in the context of Campion, and I think this is what I was hinting at in 2009, but had not yet seen in the cut. I don't think I'd seen Holy Smoke at that point, to be honest with you, in 2009. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was a couple years later. So now I think what I was kind of fumbling toward is like, why does this feel a little different than the piano? Why does it feel even different than the portrait of a lady, which was dangerous in some ways? This is, and I'm not, this isn't negative. This, I mean, like, it's an incredibly sensuous, romantic, and if you're like an English major who loves poetry, you're just going to, mm -hmm. you know, fall over head over heels for this thing. All good things. But in the context of Campion, it is very safe. And I guess, especially after our experience now, I don't want to feel safe when I'm watching a Campion movie, you know? It's not saying it's a negative thing. It's just in the context of our other work. So I think that's kind of what I was getting at, even as I very much appreciated the movie then and still do now. It feels in some ways like an outlier in Campion's oeuvre. It 
does. Yeah. But I'm going to challenge a little bit maybe the idea that it's safe. It certainly isn't as dangerous as In the Cut. It's not going to scandalize any viewers the way In the Cut would, the way Holy Smoke does, the way the piano does. It's certainly her most accessible film. It stands out as maybe... No, almost surely her most earnestly romantic, despite how sad it is, also in how chaste it is. We've talked about how frank she is when it comes to sex and depicting sex on screen, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more, but there, there is no explicit sex here. There is no actual consummation of the relationship that we see on screen anyway. But where I think it is quite provocative and quite thrilling is in the way it is not actually really at all a biopic. You joked at no, the beginning of the show it's how not. it's it's not a, or it could be called a sort of biopic. It's called Bright Star, which is a reference to a Keats poem. It is about her, as that poem was. It's about her as his muse, but her as an individual. Yes. It's about their love. And she, not John Keats, whose talent, let's be clear, is immense and extraordinary and mysterious. I'll use mysterious there, I think, to cover a lot of ground. And what I mean is, you know, just thinking about that body of work and how elusive it is, but also how genuinely touching and formidable it is. But he died at 25, and you just imagine what more work could have come out of him. Despite all that, she's the movie's most interesting character by far. And she's the one, Fanny Braun, not John Keats, you're wanting to look up more about on the internet when the movie's over. The one you're more curious about now, of course, in fairness, yes, I did study John Keats as an English major 100 years ago, and we didn't study Fanny Braun, but I think the point still stands. When this movie ends, you're most interested in Braun over Keats. Well, let me let me ask you a question about that. Is that because of your knowledge of Keats and your curiosity about Braun, or is it in the performances? Because to me... I think Cornish is is very good. She's quite fine. But compared to the other female lead performances we've gotten in this overview is like nowhere near. And and Wishaw is like devastatingly just crushing in, yeah. in his performance here. And I don't know that that was – are you asking about the historical figures or these particular characters on screen? Because for me, what's very interesting is how much Wishaw, even though I don't think it's the movie's intention, kind of becomes the most charismatic figure in the movie. Hmm. Yeah, that's not really how I saw it. I mean, to answer your question, I – think it's both. I was more interested in these characters, more curious about the characters I see on screen, and more curious about the historical figures themselves. And I think it's easy, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way towards you, I think it's easy to say Abby Cornish's performance maybe isn't quite up to snuff with the other ones we've seen in this marathon, because we've seen some remarkable performances from actresses like Nicole Kidman and Meg Ryan and Holly Hunter. But I'm going to say Abby Cornish actually is on their level with this performance. And I think wow. it gets back to this larger point I'm trying to make here about how this movie does really feel like a Jane Campion movie and not in maybe as safe a way as you're suggesting. Every film we've talked about has been about a woman who is an artist or at least has an artistic temperament, this yearning <laughs> To, to transcend 
her everyday life and circumstances. And that's what you really get here. That opening with the stitching or the sewing that she's doing is notable because, as you said, it's so crucial to this character. It is really her defining characteristic that just like Keats is someone who's trying to push the boundaries of poetry, she is also an artist in her own way. She has her profession. She has her craft. And she's very deliberate about wanting to push those boundaries. And she's not shy about talking about how she is doing so. And I love that kind of headstrong nature to her character and that performance. What's the line in the movie where Keats says something to her like, are you ever dishonest in something you say? Or are you being deceptive? And she basically says, no, I... I am always honest. You know, she she is just always going to be completely who she is and forthright and never compromise. And she's so assured and set in her ways. And yet what I like about the character and what I like about the performance so much is that when she does give herself over to this man she's in love with, she does so completely. And when she's without him and longing for him, she weeps and she moans about it in a way where, you know, you could insert a terrible cliche here about, you know, a high school girl who just can't be away from her first boyfriend for a weekend, right? But it's not childish in the way it's depicted at all. There's there's nothing about her feelings and the way they're depicted that suggests immaturity or naivete. It's just vulnerability. It's just kind of a very raw, expressive vulnerability. When I don't hear from him, it's as if I've died. As if the air is sucked out from my lungs. And I'm left desolate. But when I receive a letter, I know our world is real. It's the one I care for. Or just a butterfly. Yeah, I think, you know, that is all there very obviously narratively and thematically this idea that we're not going to make a biopic of Keats. We're going to talk about this equally interesting and potentially equally talented woman who came into his life. I, I absolutely admire the movie for that. I think it's more there in the narrative and the themes than it is in the performance, which is a fine performance. But if you look at what Wishaw is doing here, he's just the way he depicts the sensitivity of this man who you understand he's going to have to be that way to see the world in a way that will produce mm-hmm. this level of poetry, right? And he's he's a very Timothy Chalamet prototype in this film in that sense. But he's not demure. He's he's not I don't, weak isn't the right word, but but he's he's not like someone you can just dismiss. How about that scene yeah. when he grabs I feel like Brown? Like the wind would blow him away. Exactly, it's not like yes. that. No. Thank you. He grabs Brown with such a passion when he believes that Brown yeah. is trying to move in on Fanny, and the way this line just bursts out of him, there is a holiness to the heart's affections. Mm-hmm. Great line, right? But how about Wishaw's delivery? There is a holiness to the heart's affections. No, nothing of that. This is the poet he captures. It's not something that uh, he, he kind of like mulled over and then carefully produced. This burst out of his soul mm-hmm. <laughs> and in that moment. And it's just so beautiful. And here's what else I like that ties into what you appreciated and I did as well. His connection with Fanny is not just uh, physical or one of convenience, but it is also tied into his appreciation for her artistic talent. So she embroiders this pillow slip to be used for his brother's funeral, and he 
is grateful for that and appreciative of that and uses that. He notes that one point she talks about how she drew a little fairy princess figure on the wall by her bed in the room that he is now occupying, something like that. They've, they've both spent time in this room. And he notes the butterfly frock that she put on that figure. So he recognizes her as an artist. Uh, and that is that's pure campion yes. as well. And and it made it made me think of something. Do you think this is is this Keats Campion's most likable male character? Just purely mm. likable. We have Martin Donovan. Remember, we both swooned over Martin Donovan's we Aileen did. Ralph in Portrait of a Lady. But I don't know. I think Wishaw's Keats might even have him beat. Well, as a viewer, and if you're aligning yourself with Kidman's character, despite the fact that you see the mistake she's making that Martin Donovan's character is chiding her for or tried to warn her about, you could say, well, he's kind of being a jerk. Mm. Where there's nothing mean, perhaps, at all about Wishaw's Keats Mm -hmm. that I can recall, Josh. So you might be onto something there, but you're right. That would be probably his closest competition there. And when we talk about this as a Campion film, there is plenty about it that maybe doesn't feel as abstract or maybe quite as bold in some of the imagery, despite its its beauty. And there are plenty of scenes we can single out for that. I will point to a couple moments that feel completely appropriate for Campion and that are so striking and stick with you. How about when he does leave her to go away for a while to seek enough income to try to make a living and she's miserable and these butterflies then become a key part of her life. And the mom walks into her bedroom at one point, and it's a hothouse with a thousand butterflies, it seems, (laughs) around the room. And in terms of kind of so wonderfully representing her love and the state of her love in that moment, it couldn't be better because they're beautiful. They're at once beautiful, and they're also overwhelming and smothering. Mm -hmm. And I love that metaphor. And I love the shot where... We see her at one point lie down on the bed and the curtain blows over her. Yeah. Some some wind coming in and the curtain blowing over her is just another kind of lovely moment. I think that's a moment of bliss, right? Isn't that it is a moment of bliss? It's actually a kind of rare moment of bliss in this movie, but it's also one where this imagery, going back to the sewing that happens, the cross stitching, the nets even, I think they catch the butterflies in, all these different curtains. There's something about this this imagery of the cloth that Campion repeats throughout the movie, and I don't know exactly what to read into it, but I will note that there was something to me anyway. Maybe this is where I was trying to inject the Campion into the film right from the beginning. When she's sewing and that needle is kind of plunging itself into the material— it seemed very phallic to me, Josh Larson. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I'm glad you, you used my last name there. Uh, it's it's very intimately intense. Like it's the closest of close-ups. It's yeah. it's the insertiest of insert shots. There and you we've go. Talked about Campion's <laughs> talent for insert shots, and I'm going to give you another one. Going back to your butterfly moment, the one that stood out to me among many, but one of those in this film is the shot of the butterfly on the handle of the door as it's turning for the door mm-hmm. to open. Like maybe a second and a half, right? right? But And I don't even know 
what that necessarily means. We could we could probably get really pretentious and imbue all sorts of thematic meaning on the the door opening, the butterfly landing, the movement. But let's just say whatever it means, immediately you see that and it you know it's there's so much portent in it. And yeah. and and that's what Campion does. And uh, and that's where you see yes, this is a very handsome period romance, but it is also more than that. Yeah, and despite how romantic it is, as we both acknowledge, it is still a Campion film, so it is still in some ways about sexual repression, even if the withholding of sex or the lack of it doesn't consume either of them or overwhelm either of them the way it does in so many of her other films. I mentioned how chaste this movie is, and that I think the movie pretty directly suggests that they never did fully act on their carnal desire because of the mores of the time. That said, don't we basically get a sex scene in the form of them reciting his poetry to each other? I think it's yeah. La Belle Dame. It's a wonderful, yeah, wonderful it's sequence. It's so wonderful where they're kind of just moving ever closer to each other, repeating those lines to each other. It's poetry and it's hot, Josh. It really, it really is in this movie. And speaking of the poetry, you know, I have brought this up before. I'm sure over the years, talked about how crushed I was when I think in 92, I bought Roger Ebert's video companion and I read his two or two and a half star review of Dead Poet Society. And he he just tore it down, this movie that I adored. And he said at the end of a great teacher's course in poetry, the students would love poetry. At the end of this teacher's semester, all they really love is the teacher. Well, I did. <laughs> I did look at Ebert's review of this film. And he gave it three and a half out of four, so he liked it considerably more. But I imagine this movie is maybe a bit of an antidote to Dead Poet Society for Ebert, where it it doesn't aggrandize Keats. There aren't many spots where characters actually wax too poetically, sorry, about his art and his talent. He doesn't about himself. He's very self-deprecating, and it feels genuine. The movie doesn't go out of its way to reinforce why we should really care about Keats and give us kind of a romantic poets 101, but it does really make you appreciate words and the power of language, and not just of his poetry, but even just the letters they share with each other and other forms of expression. Like you said, the the drawing behind the bed, just writing good night to each other. There's something intimate about it being mm. her handwriting on that slip of paper, just writing those two words. You know, you know what you're describing that makes me think about too, is how it puts her writing and his even on an equal plane. That's right. I recognized early on, you know, that it was putting her designs as a seamstress and a, and a designer of dresses on an equal plane with his poetry. But it even goes further than that in those notes where when she writes to him goodnight or, or whatever, she mm-hmm. when she writes a letter back, it is as important as the poems he would write about her that we laud now years later. Right. Well, just intellectually, too. Yeah. There's a respect there. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. I mean, all of her ideas are just as valid and carry as much weight as anything that he says or argues, despite the ignorance she claims to have about poetry. So a good end, or maybe technically the penultimate movie in our Jane Campion overview, Bright Star. It's available to rent on most platforms. It's also currently playing on Netflix and the Criterion channel. And next up, we will get to The Power of the Dog, Campion's latest film. And we will share our Campion Oeuvre Review Awards. What will get our best picture? 
I've got a tough choice now, Josh. I don't know if you do, but I've definitely got a tough choice. It's between three different movies for Best Picture. Nice. There's at least three contenders for Best Lead Performance and a couple for Best Supporting Performance. And we'll, of course, have to get to our most campion moment and our favorite scene as well. I've already started making my list, and there are a lot of options. I think we should also do Swooniest Male. I mean, mm. just as just as an outliner and make us both choose between uh, Ben Wishaw and Martin Donovan. <laughs> I love it. More about the campaign overview, including the full lineup and our past discussions is available at filmspotting.net slash campion. That's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We want to know what is the decade's best music documentary. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release, Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, plus The Souvenir Part 2 from director Joanna Hogg. I know it's Josh Larson recommended. I think I saw the very high star rating on your website. Oh, it's really strong. If you saw The Souvenir, you are going to appreciate this deeply. If you haven't seen The Souvenir, see The Souvenir and then see The Souvenir Part 2. That would be my recommendation. Now, as I recall, I was... The rare critic who was pretty mixed on The Souvenir Part 1, but over the weekend at Trivia Spotting, one of our guest captains said, this is absolutely a movie made for me, Part 2, so we'll see. Yeah, okay, so that's interesting, because I think that's right. This movie, Part 2, is going to convince you of maybe what you missed out on in Part 1, because Mm. it's very much up your alley, it's very meta, it's about filmmaking, and kind of brings to the fore a lot of what I, I really liked about part one. So, so okay. yeah, I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Really, really intrigued. Lots of trivia spotting name drops here. Clifford the Big Red Dog is coming out in wide release, and former captains Brian Tallarico recommended it. Surprisingly sweet and charming in an old-fashioned Disney way, kind of hard to hate. And Mariah Gates says, gonna send the mean sheep after all the haters. <laughs> On digital... You've got Home Sweet Home Alone. This is on Disney Plus. Red Notice starring Dwayne Johnson, Gal Gadot, and Ryan Reynolds on Netflix. How about Rocky versus Drago, the ultimate director's cut on VOD? No one told me they were releasing this? I wish no what? one had told me that this I, was happening. I, I should have been allowed to participate in the culling through of the footage. Oh, I, good gracious. I'm so, I'm so crushed. Procession also out. This is from director Robert Green, who made... The really fascinating Docs Bisbee 17 and Kate Plays Christine. Also out, the movie we strongly recommended in our opening segment, Passing, from director Rebecca Hall. Next week, we are off, but then we're going to come back the week of Thanksgiving, and we will get to our Jane Campion finale, The Power of the Dog, and our Oeuvre Review Awards, and we'll see what else we catch up with in the meantime. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
So it's like seven people will get that as a white men can't jump reference. Okay. The first time they play together, Woody Harrelson against Wesley Snipes and Kadeem Hardison's like his sidekick. Wesley Snipes like, you know, makes a three or something. And he's like, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. My man John Keats said that. Nice. It's just one of those lines I always remember. <laughs> if John Keats comes up, I quote that line. So Good poll. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.